0: Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Justice Amo. Justice is a PhD student at the Thayer School of Engineering at Dartmouth. Justice, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thank you, Sam. I'm happy
1: to talk to you today about my week.
0: Uh, Fantastic. So to kind of lead us into what you're up to, I would love if you'd Mm -hmm. share a little bit about how you got started working in machine learning and AI.
1: Yeah, sure. I'm happy to um, share a bit about my background. So um, I was born and raised in Ghana and came to Dartmouth for undergrad. Um, So this was in like 2009. And in undergrad, when I was coming in, I always knew I wanted to do electronics. So that's where I started off. Um, pretty much embedded systems, right? How do you build devices? That was always fascinating to me. So I finished undergrad becoming sort of good at building devices or embedded systems. And then when I stayed, I stayed a year after undergrad to do research. Um, One of my mentors in um, undergrad was, he had this research project and he was like, hey, um, I think you really do good on this. He was interested in building, um, building a wearable monitor for monitoring asthma like pre monitoring the lungs right like if you can listen to what is going on in the lungs then maybe you can better advise so he asked me to come on board and i was excited to come on board and just explore that project for um a year and it really came down to two things one was how do you build the hardware that can really listen to you know can acquire the sound really well right and then the second phases, once you have that hardware in place, right, how do you detect these sounds well enough? How do you detect sounds and sounds and symptoms like coughing, wheezing, or even when someone is panting, how do you detect them and do that very well? And so that one year I did, we came pretty far on like devising a good hardware. And so I started looking at, you know, how do we do detection? What are the algorithms existing for detection? That's what brought me to classifiers and machine learning and looking at that. And so after that one, one year, we're all excited about the work. I was like, hey, let's explore this as a PhD work. And I stuck on to work on it. Um, and it was mainly from the standpoint of, of, okay, how do I, now that I have some hardware, how do I make the signal really great? And then how do I really um, detect these sounds very well? So started from traditional classifiers, like, you know, decision trees, um, hidden Markov models, because those were the things that people were doing around that time. And then all the way leading to, um, you know, deep learning, looking at like convnets, and then more recently into recurrent nets. So that's kind of been the very broad journey, yeah, of mine.
0: One thing that jumps out at me hearing the the story is that you started with the hardware and then went on to think about the the software. Is that it strikes me as the opposite of the way that one might yeah. purchase. Is that like an academic thing or was there something novel about the way you were approaching the hardware that you you thought was the right thing for this application?
1: Yeah, actually, um, it's interesting you point that out because like I really started out interested in hardware, right? How do I build really good hardware? And the point wasn't just, uh, you know, build um, whatever hardware, like, you know, build the best hardware. I was really constrained for, you um, very um, efficient but affordable hardware. The initial goals were, um, like I mentioned, I'm from Ghana, so our initial goals were: how do we build devices that can be used in, you know, um, under resource communities, communities where you know they cannot afford to buy really expensive devices, right? Um, in areas that you can't have doctors to do diagnosis, can you use some of these tools to, um, you know, better do diagnosis. So that was really the real motivation. And so when I was building hardware, even in building the hardware, um, I realized that you know hardware is expensive, software is cheap, right? Mm. So there is this trade-off you can do, right? You can build a just okay hardware and do more of the signal, more of the um, signal processing and machine learning, um, so that you don't have to use you know the best sensors. So you can have really cheap like hardware, and then software is much cheaper. So, you know, you can duplicate it, right? So that's where it really, like I followed that trajectory where I built the hardware that was like, you know what, this hardware is good enough. I could spend more time making the best hardware that would be very expensive, but I think this is affordable. And so now how do I use software to bridge that gap, to go the extra mile, right? And so that's where it came in. And machine learning um, became a really good answer to that, right? Because now even if you have, Data that is not like hundred percent, like you know, um, clean. You can still use um, advanced pattern recognition tools to extract information from that and make really reasonable inferences of that. So it was like that practical approach that brought me into machine learning.
0: And so before we jump into the machine learning elements, can you? Give us an overview of the, the hardware and the various components. It sounds like acoustics, maybe some, some microphones or, uh, something like that. And, uh, you know, what is the processing capability? What are the various components of the hardware system?
1: So. As I said, I'm interested in um, in this um, application. We're interested in basically auscultating sounds from the body. So that's like what a stethoscope does, right? And so you want an acoustic sensor that you can collect sound from the body. You could use really um, um, advanced microphones, like MEMS, but then those are really um, they can be uh, more expensive. But also, when you think of collecting data from the body, you can and you can use piezoelectric transducers that are contact sensors, right? And so when you have that compared to a microphone, it would only pick up sounds that is coming from the patient. So already you start off eliminating a lot of the external background sounds, right? So a huge part of the hardware system is um, a contact piezoelectric transducer. Also, a piezoelectric transducer can generate power. And so it's not that power-hungry. You don't have to. Um, it, it's going to be really good for low-power applications, right? And so from there, from the piezoelectric electric to your raw sensor, you have some analog front-end circuitry to condition the signal, right? You are looking for things like cough sounds um, and whee sounds, but a person is going to be wearing this most of the time, right? And people speak all the time. So you want to make sure that you're actually filtering out a lot of this, um, you know, the speech sounds and all of the other possible background sounds. So that's what a lot of the analog front end does.
0: So these are things like low pass, high pass, notch filters, that kind of thing?
1: Exactly. Exactly. So you have, you know, a couple of stages of, um, you know, classical analog filters where you are really... um, In the the kind of the range that we are interested in, you're looking for sounds between 100 hertz and two kilohertz, right? So you're attenuating anything outside of that band band, and sort of really amplifying the signal there. Because in that range, you can capture the wee sounds, the cough sounds and the things that are of interest, right? Yeah, so once you condition that signal, then now you come to, you know, you need a microprocessor to sample the the analog signal and then, you know, maybe pre-process, and identify what event actually occurred, right? And so therein, you have a lot of options for microcontrollers. But if you think of something that is gonna be wearable um, for, you know, there's something that someone will wear for maybe a whole day, that leaves you with only ultra low power microcontrollers, right? You cannot think of some of the fancy, you know, M4, even M7, you have to go to something that is really, really low power. So the huge specification of this was to go for, the lowest power microcontroller. So we are using an ARM M0, right? That's like the lowest power, um, the most energy efficient ARM microprocessor out there, right? So once you go there, that's where all the constraints begin to happen because you don't have, you don't have floating point operations, you don't have um, DSP um, instructions. So you are really constrained, right? And you still have to be able to get inferencing working at that level. That's, I guess, pretty much sort of the, con- the setup for the hardware.
0: And so that led you down the path of trying to figure out how to get uh, the various types of uh, software that you wanted to have working uh, on this hardware. You had to work within kind of these these constraints. Um, yeah, you've got some constraints that are set up by the, the choice of microcontroller. Are you also thinking about... Like power envelope and that kind of thing, or is that all inferred by the microcontroller choice? So actually,
1: the ultimate and fundamental constraint is power, right? Power is always always right. (laughs) Exactly. So you start out with power, and if you really look at the power range you are talking about, right? um, To put it in perspective, so an iPhone, like smartphones, are around a thousand milliwatts. Even some of these fun embedded systems are around hundreds of milliwatts. But we are talking of tens of milliwatts, so that already really constrains you. And when you look at all the microprocessors available within that low, ultra-low power range, right? You realize they have they have so many things in common. Like they don't have, um, you know, de- um, they don't have floating point operations. They um, their clocks are normally much slower. We are looking at things less than 48 megahertz, and so you the con- um, the constraints become very apparent for that range.
0: I guess what I was curious about was you know, certainly within a given power constraint, you choose your microcontroller, uh, but I, I guess I was envisioning a scenario where you want to do things at the software level to even further manage the power consumption given a, a specific microcontroller. Are you having to deal with that kind of thing or
1: yes. did you oh, just constrain exactly. the
0: power by choosing the microcontroller and then you can go hog wild no. with...
1: No, so that's a perfect question, actually, because even with the microcontroller you have in place, if you just run it all the time, you're not going to make your power budget. (laughs) So so you have to do this, you know, event, pre-event detection task that can, you know, your microcontroller is mostly in a very low power state and you wake it up when you think that the events you are seeing correspond to, you need to make an inference on it. So you have all of those like low level sort of software already um, implemented. It's kind of like the very first layer of your entire detection pipeline, right? Just wake up WebAid has an, a sound event occurred okay at all, right? Before you wake up other things to do okay. processing. So sounds, you have that block layer. It
0: mm-hmm. sounds like a low level version of like the, the wake word for an Alexa type of device.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Uh-huh.
1: The Putting like the whole pipeline is very, very interesting because you have to get all these blocks in place in order to make all your specifications.
0: And so you, you have the hardware in place. I'm imagining that the traditional way of solving this problem is using kind of time tested digital signal processing algorithms. Is that the direction that you'd first go with this or, or is there something yeah. else?
1: Yeah. So when I started my research very early on, right,
0: um, the the traditional way was, you know what,
1: you get your signal and you do like as much signal processing as you can. Um, So you are doing things like, you know, what is the best feature extraction that you can do? Right. So people have come up with so many sort of handcrafted features. That once you extract those features, it makes it so easy to infer you your event, right?
0: So I'm imagining things at, like FFTs would come into play here.
1: Exactly. 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 FFTs, so FFTs
0: being fast Fourier transform is a way to kind of extract the frequency components of a, an in, incoming signal.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So doing something like that and even other sort of Uh, Steps on top of the FFT, so get something like the spectral uh, centroid, the fundamental frequency, and all of the all of these things make it much much easier. So that now you can just use a very simple, say like, um, you know, thresholding to detect when an event has happened, right? Right. So that was kind of like the existing work, right? Mm -hmm. Um, How do you extract the salient features from this so that classification becomes so so much easier, right? Okay. But of course. The handicap of that is what is the best feature, right? So folks have spent so many years sort of identifying the best features for, say, curve detection, for whiz detection. And I started out that looking at all of that. And that's when the promise of deep learning became really exciting because in deep learning now, you don't have to hand engineer features, right? You can do the learning of both the features and the classifier jointly. So that's actually what pushed me into that direction that, hey, why I'm sitting here trying to handcraft the best feature sets, but it can actually be automated as part of the process. So how about we look at that and see how that compares?
0: And so as a, you know, someone who's equally excited about deep learning, I kind of get that as a direction, but I wonder if you've got, uh, you know, a very well Defined kind of body of work for that's you know there's already handing you the features, kind of telling you the way to do it. What what's the real advantage that deep learning is giving you?
1: Yeah, so um, one of the key things to start realizing was these models were um, there. These kind of like handcrafted features were there, but one of the areas that they really struggled to deal with was how do you handle you know uh, the temporal nature of the data, right? Okay, that is pretty um, key. So. A a typical cough actually has um, very key characteristics. You have about three phases. So there is a first phase that is um, sort of the um, explosive phase. Literally, you have like these three phases that are very distinctive to the cough, right? And the properties in any of these three states are very different, right? But then most of the previous methods were all sort of, pretty much like think of them as a static way of approaching and not really taking advantage of the temporal properties. So they could only do so well. Right. And people had now started using things like hidden Markov models to try to model those temporal patterns. And those were sort of like working very well, but then hidden Markov models are pretty, um, you know, beastly algorithms to start dealing with. Right. And so a good segue was, Hey, um, and I started out also like implementing HMMs for this application. Mm-hmm. And um, at that level, you've already gone into the complexity um, that, you know, you can now use some of that even deep learning models are these days much easier than, you know, a full blown hidden Markov model. Right. So you quickly run into the area where you realize that this traditional um, approach was not doing the work quite right. And cause detection becomes even much more complex when you, are, you start thinking of different patients and um, patient to patient variability. So the sounds, the, the, the cough sounds sound very different from different patients. And when they have different conditions, it makes it sound like, you know, very different. So you quickly run into the issue where you just feel like, no, I need um, better models to really capture this.
0: How far down the path of the traditional Mm -hmm. models did you go? Did you try, did you have a working HMM that you could later compare to deep learning?
1: Yeah, so that was actually one of my um, very first papers. I did a a whole survey on all of these traditional algorithms that folks had been using. We had decision trees, you had your SVM, you had the HMM with like, you know, Gaussian mixture model observations. And then you had like the, you know, the early neural networks I started working on. So the first thing I started doing was to use convolutional neural networks. And they compared very well. They compare, like, you know, um, much better than the HMM, right, which was very, very impressive. And at that time, um, I was using the convolutional neural net on top of the um, the spectrogram, right? I was using, um, yeah, on top of the spectrogram. So it was being able to learn both the, you know, The temporal and spatial, in terms of the frequency components of the sound, and helping you make decisions, like make good inferences based off on that. So I started off actually validating that. Hey, actually, these deep learning approaches work much better than the traditional, um, you know, approaches. Those are some of my early ways. Okay. Before jumping more into it. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay. So I'm imagining the early work into CNNs. You you validated all this, but you were doing this on desktop computers, and then you had to figure exactly. out, okay, how do I get this thing to actually run on the devices?
1: Exactly, exactly, exactly.
0: Before we dig into into that, I just remembered a, a question I had from your earlier description of the hardware. You mentioned that you were using traditional analog stages to uh, condition the signal. Um you know, one of the, the great things, and you you mentioned this about deep learning, is that you don't have to do a lot of uh, feature engineering. And often you find that um, by giving the network, you know, as much data and not doing as much pre-processing as you might otherwise do, it can find patterns that haven't traditionally been used. Like maybe a cough has like these really high frequency components that no one really thought about, but that can be predictive. Did you explore that um, angle at all?
1: Yeah, so I did. I did with um, sort of the
0: first ConvNet, right?
1: So this was um, around, uh, I started um, this work around 2014, 2015 using the ConvNet. And so I was using like piano at that time. And I started uh, visualizing the features it was learning, right? Um, Of course, some of them were, um, there were some that looked really interesting. So if you look at the spectrogram. Normally in speech, you have these harmonics, right? Where you would have these kind of like distinct fine lines in the spectrum, but cough is just a burst of energy, right? So it's quite over the entire place, right? It's like the whole place is just full of energy. And you could see that what the network was actually doing was for the cough, it was really activated um, by like a broad range across the spectrogram. Whereas like for the speech, it was mostly activated by these sort of lines, right? And in that in that first, I thought I was doing was discriminating between cough and speech. So you could definitely see that it was learning this notion um, and was being activated by the fact that in cough, you have a burst of energy spread across a wide range of frequencies, and it would highlight those. Yeah.
0: Given that, why is it still important to do the conditioning?
1: Oh, so... Well, the, the reason why it's actually important to do the conditioning is because of the sensor that we are using, right? So I, like I mentioned, I'm using this piezoelectric transducer, which is, um, it's, it's, it's not like, you know, your best microphone. It's actually a good, it's used for like guitar pickups. So the sensor is not great to begin with. So your signal is actually really bad to start out with. So the conditioning that we do on there is um, one, to sort of make sure that hey um, your your signal is at least clean enough that it's even audible when you hear it that you know a person can discern something because without that conditioning um you can't even hear the different events that okay, right? oh, wow. okay but yeah but i think what was what was really critical is you do have a point because we could have done more conditioning on there to get a really great signal right but that would have defeated the the point and so, because you could have added more stages, just like really good um, operational amplifiers, but we really did the minimal. So we have like a one stage filter, for instance, right? The minimal processing so that you can use the rest of the deep learning pipeline to take advantage of that, right? So we do sort of really use the benefit of the um, not having to clean up the signal too much, except we do do a little cleaning.
0: Yeah. Got it. Got it. Yeah, that was the intuition that I was trying to explore. Um, yeah. <laughs> awesome. So, for your latest paper, which you presented at uh, NeurIPS at the the Black and AI Workshop, which is all about an optimized recurrent unit for ultra low power acoustic event detection, uh, tell us about that that paper and the key challenges you're trying to solve there. Yeah.
1: So that's great. Like, um, and I think it follows very well with kind of like what we've been discussing up until now. So like I mentioned, I started with convolutional neural nets and the conv nets are great, right? We all love them. <laughs> they do awesome. Um, and even these days, there is um, an argument that, hey, recurring neural nets are no longer necessary because if you see some of Google's work with on like WaveNet, mm-hmm. you see these dilated convolutions are doing great for speech recognition and like speech synthesis. So why, why do we care about recurrent nets at all? Um, and the motivation for that was first, recurrent nets, when you're thinking of like really constrained sort of um, applications, where you don't have a lot of time for, you can't admit a lot of latency, right? In conv nets, you if you think about it, you literally have to buffer up the entire event so you can apply the ConvNet and you have to apply Windows. But recurrent nets have this natural nature where they can process data one time step at a time, right? So that's really great. It's great for our application because it's just like a digital filter. You can implement it in such a way that a sample comes in, you process it. The next sample comes in, you process it. And you have really, really low latency, right? So that was one of the big promises for starting this, right? But then once we started, okay, we have this recurring nets, we can train them and they can do very well on the task. How do we put them on the device? Then it's like, while wow, we open a whole box of um, challenges. Cause, <laughs> cause um, it's interesting. There are a lot of people working on deploying deep learning to the edge. Um, and you know, you have you know really great hardware systems like the NVIDIA Drive. You have like Jetson, um, which is like this small um, if, uh, embedded system board by NVIDIA that you can throw you know neural nets on there and they run just fine, right? But when you look at all of these hardware. We yeah, are just above our power budget, right? We are running at either tens of thousands of milliwatts or thousands, and we are literally looking for something that's within, um, you know, ten, um, tens of milliwatts, right? Something that looked very promising was this um, library It's called uh, like uh, mu tensor or micro tensor. Um, It's supposed to be a really lightweight um, tensorflow library that can run on certain embedded boards. But then when you look at that, it's still above the power range of these really, really ultra low power, like, you know, microcontrollers, right? And so the challenge is, can we take the classical models and put them on these microcontrollers? And the first thing we realize is, no. If you look at the specifications on there, you are thinking of, you know, memory of, um, you're thinking of memory of like less than 32 kilobytes, you don't have floating point operations. That's like a no-no, right? And so the real challenges was, well, how do we look at the, the you know, some of these recurrent neural networks? I was looking at particularly the gated recurrent unit. And how can I optimize it all the way down so that it can run on my target device, right? So that was the motivation, right? That um, when you look at the current systems, they are limited. Precisely in terms of power, right? And if we can come up with a way of optimizing them, such that they can run on this unit, then that would be great, right? So once that problem was formulated, I ran into the you know the main areas in which I can start optimizing them. Yeah.
0: Okay, and just to get a sense of of the scope of this, you said you're trying to optimize this uh, gated recurrent unit all the way down. Uh, does that mean you're like writing it in assembly and uh, you know and writing it to you know to run on this physical device at the instruction level like how far down are we going here
1: oh okay so um I, I'm writing it to run just at sea level right so okay. it's okay. just yeah see not assembly <laughs> thank goodness yeah but <laughs> just, at, just um at sea right but that means you know you cannot just um you know grab your um, tensor flow model and just run it on TensorFlow like right? That means you're gonna have to write everything from scratch in a very optimized way.
0: <laughs> and so the, this, how did you approach this process of writing the, of kind of writing it to run on a device? Was it, I and mean, you talked a little bit about uh, challenges, was it, was, was it just kind of work or were there particular problems that you ran into that you had to overcome?
1: Yeah so there were there were actually like three main areas I identified that um you know of like optimization that could really make this feasible um so just sort of start and and a lot of these had been you know already researched and explored right in isolation but it had been done that's one of the great things about the deep learning community um there are so many researchers working on incredible things and so just Um, taking the time to look at all the work, you would see that a lot of people have worked on um, how do you really quantize which, right? Um, So there was a lot of work there. Um, And how do you make which run on, um, um, run, um, how do you say maybe build neural networks without even using a lot of multiplication. So there were a lot of these, um, you know, research out there. And then when I really sat down and started like, um, you know, Thinking of implementing, I did this in steps, but the four main areas um, that I did was, um, the first was sort of in the gated recurrent unit. So if you think of the gated recurrent unit, it's actually an optimized form of the LSTM unit, right? Where you know in LSTM, you have a lot of gates. In the gated recurrent unit, you just have um, two gates. You have your reset gate and your updated gate. So I was like, wait, if we can optimize LSTM to go, then we can optimize growth even down, right? What happens if we just use one gate, right? And there, there's um, a lot of, there was some, there are some, a few works out there actually from um, 2017, <laughs> 2017, 2018, there were a few researchers who were just working on this idea of, hey, what if we throw out um, one of the gates, particularly the reset gate? Um, so two main papers stood out. There was, there's one paper from Benjo's group which said in speech recognition applications, you can actually omit the reset gate. And because speech doesn't change so much, um, it doesn't change um, too quickly. Like it, you don't have these sudden discontinuities. It tends to work just as okay as having um, a glue. And so I took that and sort of um, tried to apply that to my case. of like, okay, maybe I can get rid of the, um, the reset gate. And when I in my first simulations, when I did this, I realized that for my application, it actually tends to work well. Um, and yes, curve detection is different from speech because you do have you know sudden changes when the event happens. But then um, I validated that you can actually omit the reset gate and get it to work as much. Right. The next once I was able to do that, so you cut down one gate, and gates are expensive, by the way, because um, a gate means you need weights, you need a lot of weight, you need um um you need a lot of computations to do the dot product, right? Do the weight and the activation function. So just by removing one gate, it's like you cut down the network by 33% in terms of memory and um you know computation. Like right? so once I got rid of the gates, the next the main area that everyone thinks of when they are thinking of you know making uh optimizing neural net is quantization, right? So I have to do quantization. But what was popular out there was 8-bit quantization. I think even today, you can use TensorFlow or even PyTorch and you can get 8-bit weights equivalent of whatever network you train, right? But I knew 8-bit wasn't going to cut it for my application. So we had to go all the way down to just 3-bits, right? 3-bit quantization for the network. So I also did a lot of experiments and um, um, and simulations to ensure that with three weights, I can still sort of train the network and have it run well. And the trick there was to do what people have done in the, um, in the, um, in the past, which is during training, you apply the quantization as kind of like functions within your computational graph so that you are simulating the quantization process whilst you are training and the network is learning about it and it's shifting the weights, um, you know, to the right, the right places. Um, yeah, something else too with the quantization was rather than just quantizing to three bit weights, you you could quantize them such that they are just, you know, um, integer exponents of two or like, you know, um, the inverse of integer exponents of two. And if you did it that way, then you don't need multiplications anymore because you can replace all multiplications with, um, you know, with base shift, right? So to recap the two main areas, one was throw away, throw away one of the gates and then you know, cut down the network computation and memory by 33%, do um, this kind of exponential weight quantization all the way down to three bits, and that saves you a lot of memory, but also it enables you to just do bit shifts and no multiplications, which you can do on the ultra-low-power microcontroller, right? And then um, the other main area of optimization was um, we don't have we don't have floating point units on the microcontroller. So to get rid of every floating point operation and replace that with integer operations, right? So the whole network on the microcontroller has to be implemented in such a way that you are just using integer operations, right? So all the activation functions, all the um, you know the linear transformations, the weight multiplication and dot product, they all have to be done in such a way that you are operating within um, integer um, you know, framework. I was using like 16-bit integers and then you're applying all the necessary clipping so you don't overflow, right? So those were the the main sort of key areas the quantization, the integer arithmetic throughout, throwing out the single gate, like, um, uh, throwing out the reset gate and then also using fast activations
0: because those always help, right? Using, what was that last one? Fast activations? Fast
1: act- yeah, active- so I had to, like, you know, so in the traditional, um, you know, recurring unit or gated recurring unit, you have um, the sigmoid and the tanh, and those are expensive on the microcontroller. Whenever you have to do an exponential on the microcontroller, if you are thinking ultra low power, they become very painful. And so what I did was to use soft sign functions. Instead, you can have like soft sign variants of the tanh and the soft sign, and it works
0: just as well,
1: Right. So these are the four main areas I had to to bring together in order to really pull this off.
0: One of the things that occurs to me here is a lot of times when we're trying to get networks to converge, we're doing things like dropout and other things that are like Mm -hmm. adding noise, which uh, kind of helps with regularization. But your process is inherently adding noise. So does that change the way... Uh, you do regularization or eliminate the need to do uh, regularization when you're trying to train the network?
1: Yeah, so I don't, do, um, I don't do any additional regularization apart from these methods that I'm talking about. And almost every one of them you can actually think of as a regularization. And you see that effect. So if I train on um, a really big network, it actually trains um, – you are able to convey to about the same or even slightly better – than what you would with like, you know, um, like a full precision network, right? But then when you go like really, um, when you are training a very, very small network, the full precision um, will, um, you know, do better. But yes, you do see the regularization effect of these, and, and you don't need to do any additional external regularization. I think one thing also that I have to point out is, you see the whole simulating the quantization, but also the fixed point integer arithmetic, it pretty much means you are sort of clipping how high the output of certain nodes can go, right? So nothing can go above the highest number in say um, 16-bit integer representation. So it's almost like you're doing weight clipping, right? You're you're doing all of these things that you would traditionally do with regularization. It's in fact really strict regularization. So it ends up training very well, and then you're able to get a network that functions.
0: So you made a comment about how, for large networks, it works as well or better than, um, than non you know networks where you're not doing these four things. How broadly does that generalize? Is that you know just for this specific problem, or I mean, we we always care about you know compute and and usually care about power. Like, could you just take this and? Apply it to something totally, you know, a totally different kind of problem, and do you think it would work? Or are there specific things about your problem that allowed you to make these compromises?
1: Mm-hmm. So actually, in my paper, uh, in the work that I presented, in the paper that will be, um, um, I actually uh, we wrote a paper on this that will be coming out in um, for you become like maybe later this year. What we realized was we tried on two additional like tasks. Right, one was. Um, recognizing spoken digits, right? And you see that it still works, right? Um, In like when you're trying to, Google has this speech commands data set, it pretty much has like um, one second audio recording of sounds like on, off, um, and you have 20,000 plus examples, right? And it works just as well. Where you begin to see it hurting, is um, when you look at the third task we consider, this is what's called like urban sounds, where you have really, really long recordings. You have recordings that are um, about four seconds long, right? And sequences that are about 100 plus, you know, instances. There you begin to see it hurting. I think one of the reasons why it begins hurting is because when you don't have the reset gate, you are pretty much now, li- like you are limiting the long-term um, memory of the network, right? That's like the very advantage of the group and then the um, lstm like you're handicapping the network in that because it can't really remember for too long right um so i think these optimizations make it very suitable for applications like you know keyword spotting or where you are literally detecting sounds that are very short you know or not very short but relatively short Um, so you know anything one second two second and below then it becomes really promising but then once you're looking at really long sequences like you would in speech recognition, then it would not be ideal, right?
0: And so you mentioned two additional tasks. Was one the digits and the other was the speech commands or were those one?
1: Yeah, those were those one. The speech commands um, has the spoken digits. The third task was this urban sounds. Um, it's a data set. It's available online. And they have um, – it's actually a really difficult task. They, literally, they have, like, recordings. Of environments. you have things like child playing, car honking, and you know you are supposed to identify these classes. You have about um, twenty classes or so, or ten classes, ten to twenty classes, one of those. And sometimes it's really even hard for a person to discriminate between them because you know the sounds are long and then the context is also very broad, right? So those that was a very difficult task for um, the our model they were performing maybe 10 to 15% worse than using the full blown, um, a full-blown, a, a full-precision, like, you know, GRU network.
0: Okay. Uh, what was that uh, data set called again? Um,
1: Urban Sounds data set. So I think, if I remember correctly, um, it's from, yeah, they, they have two. There's the Urban Sound 8K, and um, and then, um, like, a more Urban Sound, like, with even longer recordings, and they have a paper out there on it. Um, I think it's a data set in taxonomy for urban sound research was published in an ACM um, conference on multimedia. So it's a data set that has been out there since 2015. I'm correct, yeah.
0: All right. So you've developed the this GRU kind of all the way down. Uh, you have demonstrated that it works for your task and reasonably well for other tasks. Are you done then? Or is there more work that you had to do here?
1: Yes. Yeah, so I think right now um, for, and, and I actually had deployed it to the um, the device and have it like, you know, um, run on examples in the data set and get like um, the decent results. I think one key area too was latency, right? You need this to not just fit, but be fast enough. Right. And that also we were meeting the right specs actually we where um, going about 60 to 70 times faster than if you were to just manually put a GRU onto any of these devices. And so while they all work and everything is like great, you've been able to embed the model, the entire pipeline that I talked about, right, also needs to be in place, right? So right now, it means, you know, our GRU, our our optimized recovery unit can, when you train it, they can really detect these sounds. But then once you put it, once you start thinking of, okay, I have a whole streaming input, right? How do I ensure that I'm turning off my microprocessor, like at the right time, I'm waking up quickly enough so that I don't miss the event, and then my, you know, recurring neural network is also, um, like, it's also processing the incoming sequence, and and finally, also, how do I, so you get some output from your recurring network, but how do you smoothing over those posterior probabilities and actually... Um, record the event at what time so those are that sort of um, additional work that's what I've been working on sort of completing that whole pipeline right? because at the end of the day the, um, the RNN is one block in that whole pipeline and you want to get the whole pipeline working so this can be used in real time right? so that's kind of like the work that I'm finishing on right now
0: Nice and you're finishing up your PhD what's next for, for you and this project
1: yeah, so I'm uh I'm very excited. I will, I'm hopefully gonna be defending in a month. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> um, and, yeah, <laughs> Good <luck. laughs> So it's, it's very exciting. Thanks. But um um actually, my advisor and I have founded a company called ClearWise to commercialize these um this uh asthma monitoring device that I've been talking about. This wearable device for monitoring the lungs, right? And the company is called ClearWise, and we are very excited about it. Um. We just, um, I was just awarded an SBIR grant to sort of see that through. So I think for the next year, that's what I'll be, that'll, that's what I'll be fully dedicated to trying to bring the technology out of the lab and into, um, the hospitals to actually, um, use in uh, patients.
0: Nice. Nice. And so I imagine that this will have to go through the, uh, kind of the FDA approvals or is this subject to like clinical trials and all of those kinds of things? Yes. So
1: eventually, um, it's going to go to FDA. We've actually been sort of prepping all the right materials and um, sort of lining up the right studies we have to do. I have done some preliminary studies at the hospital on patient population of even up to 30, actually testing on patients. But we have to do like a really full blown study. But for the next year, um, we are hoping to work with pharmaceutical companies who are already you know, doing clinical trials for their um, respiratory therapeutics. And they need data. They need data on, you know, are these patients responding to particular drugs, right? And often the available, um, the available data is just subjective reports from patients. Oh, I think this week I was coughing less. But if they could have something that's more objective, huh? They were wheezing X hours throughout this week, and that reduced by 10% the next week, or their cough went down by this. That would be really, really, you know, actionable for them and really valuable to them. So we are talking with some pharmaceuticals about, you know, um, their need and positioning um, the device in such a way that it can fulfill that need.
0: Awesome. And will you also be getting into physical manufacturer of the devices themselves? Um, yes.
1: So for for some of the studies that I did, I had to do like batch sort of manufacturing of these processes of um, these devices. Um, because you, are, you know you're running a small study where you have maybe 50 um, subjects you still have to have a lot of um, you know devices and you have to have like packaging down how does it arrive to uh, the hospital how do you get the information in and out and so I, I've had to do that and I anticipate I'm gonna have to do much more of that like in the in this in this year once I finish school Wow so wow. yeah so well, it's, it's exciting
0: yeah, it sounds like a really exciting project, and uh, you will certainly have your hands full over the coming months. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to share it with us.
1: Oh, thank you. Well, this was fun, talking about on my way.
0: Fantastic. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit TwimmelAI.com. Of course,